0: Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. It's never too late to catch the China train. You can still ride the dragon to heaven. That was the impressive promise made by a senior official named Wan Jianjun at a recent conference for international investors which was held in Hong Kong. In the audience were a cluster of billionaires as well as a few multi-millionaires, many of whom had flown in from the United States of America just for the occasion. The message from the Chinese hosts was intended to show that they're not too worried about the patchy performance of the Chinese economy this year. And to prove it, they laid on a feast with dozens of bottles of the finest champagne and wine. Well, I'm very pleased to welcome back to the podcast this week an expert who's made a real name for himself due to his sharp analysis Duncan Wrigley is Chief China Plus Economist at Pantheon Macroeconomics, and he's able to offer us an independent perspective on China. Duncan, welcome back to China in Context. It's great that you're able to join us again as 2023 draws to a close. I'm sorry I haven't got any chilled champagne for us to celebrate the new year yet.
1: (laughs) Well, Duncan, it's always a pleasure to be on your podcast. Uh, looking forward to maybe
0: next time, just in front of Chinese New Year, we can pop open the bubbly. Sounds like a great idea. Well, let's start with talking about that meeting in Hong Kong, which I mentioned, the one where Mr Wang said, we can still drive the dragon to heaven. Let me share with you some of the names of the people in the audience sitting, listening to him. James Gorman. He's the chairman and CEO of Goldman Sachs, sat next to him was David Solomon of Apollo Global Management, Forbes reckons that Mr. Solomon is worth seven billion US dollars. I could go on. I mean, the papers revealed after sitting patiently through these speeches by Chinese central bankers and regulators and so on, those titans of US business had a huge party in Hong Kong, no expense spared. What are we to make of it? Well,
1: number one, China is still the second largest economy in the world. Yes, it's going for a difficult, difficult pact right now. Uh, um, you know, after reopening, it's a bit sluggish, structural problems. But the potential market remains large. And especially in areas, you know, you've mentioned a couple of names from financial services. China is rolling out the red carpet to welcome in. In uh, foreign investment and financial services. Today, we saw the approval of MasterCard as a uh, payment card processing business in China. And China will also press forward with financial reforms going forward as part of its uh, reforms to support growth. And, and those are bound to include the financial sector.
0: Can I share another nice quote? This was overheard at the banquet for the billionaires. The host was Henry Tang Yen, and he said, I hope you'll enjoy the wines, because otherwise I will drink them myself. Excellent champagne. Please start with that. And then he ordered the waiters to pop open the bottles of Krug Grand Cuvée champagne, which sells in restaurants for about $600 a bottle. And yet people say that Hong Kong is under the tight grip of the Communist Party of China. I'm somewhat amazed, to be honest.
1: I think it's fair to say that um, Hong Kong, in terms of the market, the economy, um, many other aspects of society, remains open for business. Um, it is true that um, you know some of the um, national laws have been rolled out in Hong Kong, but so far it doesn't uh, affect, as as you've just shown, Hong Kongers' appetite for capitalism.
0: Well, indeed. Um, So there's an appetite for capitalism. And yet, you know, that person that I'm talking about there, uh, who was uh, paying for the wine, he's actually got a background in politics. He, in fact, uh, Henry Tang abolished the tax on wine when he was Hong Kong's financial secretary. And, you know, I, I, I don't think he would have been allowed to have a party for these uh, senior executives from the United States, uh, unless it had all been sanctioned at the highest level by the party. Do you? Uh,
1: no, absolutely. Um, I, th- I think you're you're right that this party that he's throwing um, is very indicative of mainland China and Beijing's desire to attract foreign investment, bring in some of these big CEOs from around the world, um, it's not just Hong Kong, but it's also been the top officials in Beijing who've been holding top level summit meetings to, to welcome in these, these business leaders. So I think it is very symbolic of the, uh, the stance that China is, is, is opening to the rest of the world.
0: Well, indeed, and we did see that in California as well on the side of the Apex summit, another big party, actually. Uh, Xi Jinping was there, of course, uh, and also um, Tim Cook of Apple. And uh, Elon Musk turned up too. Look, I'm wondering if the real reason for all these parties for business leaders is that the Chinese are assuming that the real power brokers in terms of US-China relations are not necessarily the politicians, it's the business people. So, I mean, I'm wondering what you think, but it strikes me as being quite significant that the Hong Kong Investor Conference took place just before that meeting between Xi Jinping and Joe Biden in California?
1: Well, I think what it is fair to say is that policymakers in Beijing recognise that the US system is quite different from China's system. And by that, I mean the political and the economic system. And in particular, in the US, business and other lobby groups can have enormous influence on politics, in Washington D.C., whether it's Congress or the President, and obviously the elections are very much uh, based on election funding, and it's quite substantial in the U.S. Um, so that's number one. So I think China does recognise that there's a way in to uh, to get into the top levels of U.S. influence and policymakers through business. And you know, I think the second reason is very pragmatically even when tensions are strained, as they have been, and there has been a bit of a fall recently, but they have been quite strained between the US and China at the top political levels, uh, I think China recognises that you can still reach out pragmatically to businesses and show them investment opportunities and other ways to work together, whether it's exports uh, and so forth, and therefore find um, agreements that are in both sides' interests.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good point, actually, that the the system in America encourages this sort of business lobbying, and and whining and dining goes with that, really, doesn't it? Well, let's try and take stock of what happened to the Chinese economy over the course of 2023. Um, As you know, I worked in radio for quite a long time, so I recognize that reading out strings of numbers is a bit of a trial for listeners. I'll try not to do that, but I'll just keep one number, just to keep us focused, 5%. Now, that's the figure which has been discussed for Chinese economic growth in 2023. Talk us through what that means, whether it's been achieved and how it compares to other years.
1: Well, if you give it a bit of historical context, that's one way to see it. So, you know, roughly a decade ago, Chinese GDP growth was often posting in double digits or very close to double digit growth. So this kind of growth rate has come down to half of that, even just before the pandemic. The Chinese economy was growing a couple of percentage points higher than that. So, you know, number one, the growth rate, I think, is recognized within China and without outside China, too, as a little bit slow for Chinese standards. But I think on top of that, the second thing to bear in mind is that 5%, and yes, China probably will post official growth of 5% this year, is only being achieved with the support of substantial fiscal and other policy support. If you took that away and just let the private sector drive growth, you would have a much slower growth rate. The economy would look much weaker. So that 5% isn't quite as strong as it seems um, on the surface.
0: Well, that's a good point. And actually, I was talking to someone uh, from China today, and he was saying, well, look, 5% is better than a lot of other countries have done recently. Uh, you know, sluggish growth around the world and uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, you see, he was sort of boasting about the 5%, but I think when you put it into that uh, context there, Duncan, and explain, you know, that's been as a result of government stimulation, they've still only achieved 5%, it doesn't look so impressive, does it?
1: No, that's right. Um, you know, if you look carefully at the non-policy-sensitive parts of the economies, you know, take away infrastructure, infrastructure, and take away the uh, stimulus that's going through a lot of the heavy manufacturing investment, what are you left with? You're left with private consumption? Yeah, that's kind of rebounding, but it's patchy and it's nowhere near as strong as people have hoped for. And you're left with areas like exports clearly falling in a weak global economy. And as I'm sure a lot of listeners will be well aware of, there's still very
0: weak and woeful property sector. What do you think is happening to the property sector at the moment? I mean, are we over the worst of it yet? I think the property sector is in a
1: process of bottoming out, which is a, an economist way of saying, mm, not quite sure. You know, There's been a couple of false starts, uh, but they haven't really got going. Um, the big underlying issue is massive developer debt at the likes of Evergrande and a couple of other famous names um and that issue hasn't really been directly addressed by policy uh, and meanwhile if you look at
0: home buyers sentiment remains quite weak what about longer term then because uh, you know the imf is pointing to two immense challenges which we haven't really touched on yet mm. an aging population uh, and a shrinking population too actually and low productivity Tell us what you think the implications are for the next generation of Chinese people who are graduating from college at the moment of those big, big challenges.
1: Yes, well, we know that the last, you know, even official reading on youth unemployment back in in June, July was well over 20%. Um, There's a substantial part of the the younger age population who aren't even attempting to get work, so not recorded as being unemployed. So there's no doubt that the labour market for young people is very soft at the moment. Looking longer term, as you've mentioned, um, you know, I I think there are actually some reasons for a little more optimism, kind of countering your points there. So um, sure, ageing population and low productivity right now. But if you look at some of the Uh, technologies are coming through, the kind of things that China is also pursuing avidly, you know, those include things like self-driving cars or AI technologies, then those will create some uh, high quality new jobs for young people in the medium to long term. Um, So, you know, I think there are some reasons for optimism over the longer term. And then finally, the other thing is, Urbanization. You know, that was a foundation of the last 10 years' growth. It's gone into bid bit into reverse during the pandemic. Um, but I think there are still reasons to believe that the couple of hundred million uh, migrant workers or, or rural population who, who are kind of slack in the economy will eventually move to the cities. And that will support some of the old pillars of growth, um, countering the headwinds that you mentioned in terms of aging population and current low productivity.
0: And yet, despite these problems, there's still a budget for champagne, provided you mix in the right circles, of course.
1: <laughs> well, you're right, and you you started this off by talking about what's happening in Hong Kong. You know, I've read an interesting snippet about what's happened in mainland China. People may well be aware that there's been a very uh, strict anti-corruption campaign pursued over the last 10 years. Uh, including on things like um, extravagant uh, consumption by officials, the likes of champagne and so forth. But the snippet I read recently is um, some guidance encouraging local officials in China to actually step up their consumption in order to boost their local economies. So, you know, these things go around in circles to some extent.
0: Fascinating. Well, look, thank you, Duncan. It's been great to get your insights on this episode. And in fact, over the course of the year, That was Duncan Wrigley, Chief China Plus Economist at Pantheon Macroeconomics. This podcast is made by the SOAS China Institute in London. You can find out more about our courses and research at soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here on the China in Context podcast team.